Spoiler alert! This episode of The Power of Three may contain spoilers. And that giant cacophony tells you that, yet again, you're back, you're in Scotland, you're with the Power of Three podcast, and you're with me, Kenny Smith, as we once again go through the worlds of Doctor Who in print, as we look at the latest novelizations from Target Books. And we're having a look at the third and final of the 60th anniversary specials today, as we take a look at The Giggle by Russell T. Davis, and novelized by James Goss and it's available now in all good bookshops and probably bad ones as well but buy it from a good reputable one and don't buy it online if you can help it support your local bookshop so what does the back cover have to tell us about this one? A sinister toy shop The earth erupting in violence Shockwaves travelling through history With old friends powerless to help the Doctor is drawn into a deadly duel against an old nemesis who can bend reality to his will and change the Doctor's future forever. Based on a script by Russell T. Davis, this thrilling third adventure for Doctor Who's 60th anniversary features David Tennant as the 14th Doctor and Catherine Tate as Donna Noble, as well as introducing Shuti Gatwa as the 15th Doctor. There we go. That's quite an exciting start, isn't it? So, why don't we kick off with a quick listen to a sample of text from it, which is in the official BBC audio release, which has been narrated by the wonderful Dan Starkey. And we'll be hearing more from him very, very soon. This is the end. Is that cheating? Well, it depends on how you play the game. How many moves ahead can you see? For Charles Banerjee, the end is a street in London, 1925. If he hadn't been hurrying, if it hadn't been raining so hard, if he hadn't forgotten his umbrella, if he hadn't soaked his shoe when he stepped into the gutter to avoid a muttering old lady, if all these little things hadn't happened, then he'd have gone to the department store on Regent Street. Wider choice, better prices, slightly further walk. But, no. He saw the toy shop just in front of him. Why had he never noticed it before? And he changed his plans. Mr Emporium's toy shop was a candy-striped beacon against a drab, wet stone. Its golden windows crowded with all the magic of childhood beckoning him in. Waving dolls and smiling teddy bears. Little tin horses dangling from a toy carousel. And a little red motor car spinning on a silver thread. Charles pushed against the door and felt a little thrill as a bell went ting a Last time he'd been in a place like this, his mother had been leading him by the hand to give him a little consolation prize on the last day of the holidays. He was surprised that the toy shop still towered over and wrapped itself around him, as though he was stepping into the jaws of a funfair monster. 
all red and white stripes and crammed mahogany shelves. Normally, revisiting childhood spots, he found them smaller, tireder, and somehow sadder. But this toy shop was bursting with awe and wonder and... Boot, boot! A little toy train raced around the ceiling. The exact colour... No, the exact train he'd received for his twelfth birthday. A brightly boxed jigsaw of Brighton Beach. So vivid he felt if he squinted, he'd see his toddler self with a bucket and spade. A pinboard horse derby. All the little horses in mid-leap. Two horses were leaping a cardboard fence carrying a little toy hearse behind them. And there was even a little balsawood coffin inside. The exact same sort as his father had been buried in. And was that a tiny tin nameplate? If he leaned forward and squinted, he could maybe read the name. Ding! Someone thumped the bell on the counter. A figure sprang up from behind the desk. A living jack-in-the-box. This could only be Mr. Emporium. A handsome, kindly man, beaming with joy and twinkling from his shiny pince-nez glasses to his brightly polished leather apron. Even his bow tie sparkled like a Christmas bauble. Mr. Emporium was laughing. Laughing at the world. Laughing at Charles. Ah, guten Tag, guten Tag, come into the warm. The affected German accent was sticky as mulled wine. It is raining, is it not? All of the water all splishy, splashy. Top. A tiny tut, as Charles dripped rain onto the ancient oak floorboards. Now, what can I help in the mitt? Behold! A sweep took in the entirety of the shop, and Charles stepped back. The man was filling the store and Charles felt like a lost child with a hot handful of farthings and a stammering urge to ask if they were enough for a ball. We have everything, everything you could be go-wanting. We have dolls, such beautiful pink-faced dollen, yeah? A beautifully manicured hand extended from a crisp shirt cuff and pointed. Ein, zwei, drei. At three shelves, crammed with dolls, their glass eyes sparkling. Charles wondered if he should wave back at them. We have the compendium of game, with the dice and the snakes and ladders and the rules. He snatched up a box and rattled it, the painted snakes on the cover dancing. The rules, they are very, very important, the rules, don't you think? Also, the box was thrown aside as Mr. Emporium picked up a morose teddy bear and a toy horse's head on a cantering stick. We have the teddy bears and the hobby horse. Who does not find a hobby horse to go clippity-clop down the strasse, yeah? He rode the horse back and forth behind the counter. Charles felt, all of a sudden, a little dizzy. The man's show was all too much, like brandy sauce on plum pudding. He'd come for one thing and one thing alone, and he didn't need the full song and dance. So there we go. Thank you, Dan. And also thank you once again to Michael Stevens and all at BBC Audiobooks for their permission to use that. And the release is available now in CD and downloadable form. So go out and give them a listen because, as you're about to find out, there's differences between the print version and the audiobook version. But anyway, let's find out some more about the background to this book and have a chat with the man who was involved with its creation. But not the writer, James Goss. It's someone else. Let's let him introduce himself first of all. 
Hi, I'm Steve Cole. I am the editor of the Target Novelizations. We've got the fantastic work of Mr. Goss with the giggle. Just an incredible read, particularly with the, the introduction of uh, who the real author is. <laughs> yes, it was uh, an extraordinary book to work on in many ways. James had said that he'd kind of been encouraged to go for it in the writing of it by Russell. And I think this is really someone seizing a job and turning it into something extremely extraordinary. It was you know, a real pleasure to read and a real pleasure to work on. Again, it's, a, it's another lively editorial process. Um, and there's a lot of arguing and squabbling over stuff. But at the same time, obviously, both of us have that desire to make it as, as good as it can be. So it was a very enjoyable experience overall. It did ask for quite a lot on the design front because um, obviously with the, uh, the playful narrator and the, uh, the various changes of form and format, suddenly you have to come up with a, a brain a brain maze or a choose your own adventure section or a follow the wiggly path type thing or translating the musical number. You know, that was interesting in itself. And we had a lot of discussion about how we could we could have just novelized, you know, explained what happened on screen, but that felt totally out of keeping with it. We were basically making a, a written version of the full audiovisual experience and trying to capture what that sequence was like in words, which is why I had to go to town on the uh, the different typefaces and the wiggly fonts and and all the rest of it, which was, yeah, a challenge, but ultimately I hope it worked pretty well. When I was reading the Choose Your Own Adventure sections, I was thinking, oh, 10 Little Aliens, you That's did it back in the day. I said to Jane, I said, I can't believe you're making me do this. Is it now you're making me lay the bloody thing out? In the past, it was just the, uh, the designer who had done that, which made things a little easier. Although actually, the original version of 10 Little Aliens, I did do it myself. Yes, because I was type setting the books back then as well. Oh, so many, so many, uh, twists and back onto my own timeline with uh, <laughs> with these novels because uh, I didn't work with James back then but he was coming in as the uh, as the head honcho of the uh, the official Doctor Who website then I think he would pester me to write little bits from my desk about the uh, the world of Doctor Who there but it was very very brief transition and then he really got to he was the first person I worked with when I came back to the job uh, when I worked on him with uh, Doctor Who and the Cricket Men so um, uh, yeah, I'm sorry I had to make you gazink about that again in case it brought back trauma. <laughs> Doctor Who always brings back trauma, but you know it's the best sort of trauma, and everyone always goes that extra mile with it because everyone loves being in his company for that extra mile. That was fantastic, Steve. Thank you so much. But uh, will you come back tomorrow and tell us about the church on Ruby Road? Yep. Good to speak to you too. And many thanks for that, Steve. As always, a good, proper friend of the podcast who's always available to have a chat with us. And yes, always appreciated. So there we go. We've spoken to Steve. So now we're going to make a little trip towards South East Europe and speak to the author of the book, James Goss, who has done an incredible job on this because I can heartily recommend it. I say I 
pretty much read this book in a one hour and was reading it late into the morning and it is just brilliant. It pushes your expectations and of course there's a surprise. You need to pick it up and read it for yourself. So let's meet our next guest. Hello, I'm James Goss and I novelised The Giggle. Or did I? <laughs> Very good question. Very good question. James, welcome to The Power of Three. Hello. Coming to us live from Turkey as well. Possibly. Uh, yes, if the call to prayer goes off at any moment, we will have to go back. But I think you'll be fine. Okay, I'll do my best. So, what was your first target novelization that you remember having? Uh, that would be Doctor Who and the Visitation. Uh, which I think I'd just seen on TV and then found on a little whirly gig outside a shop on Porlock Weir and was terribly excited because I was just like, oh my God, this is very wonderful. And I took it home and I literally read it a dozen times. And then I went back to Porlock Weir thinking, I wonder if there's another Doctor Who book. And I discovered The Monster of Peladon and I'd just seen The Curse of Peladon on TV. So I was like, this is incredible. It is wonderful. So I read to that home, I read that a dozen times. And then I thought, well, I wonder how many more of these books are. Are there like 10? And that was, uh, you know, ch children's minds get blown very easily by these things. Because you have to remember that, you know, The Chronicles of Narnia was seven books. And that's a lot of books. And I think uh, The Hardy Boys, which nobody else will remember, but The Hardy Boys, that was like 20 books there weren't many hardy boys and you know all all of those other books knew when to stop they got off you know just they they went into double figures if at all and then they stopped so the target book range was was a little bit mad really when you think about it oh yes absolutely i i completely get that to the books all lined up in a rack and the light blue of the visitation almost like a salt and vinegar blue in the good old days Yes, and, and I loved the cover because it had Peter Davison on it, therefore it was good. But obviously nowadays everyone goes, well, this is clearly the worst cover that there ever was, apart from Mark of Infinity, because it was just really lazy and trite and no one was trying at all. And you go, what? <laughs> I suppose the novelisation business is something that you have a wee bit of familiarity with in recent years. Yes, because this is, technically, this is my third target novel which means that I belong to a club of prolific living target authors. And I think there's sort of like, there's like a really tiny club. And you know that thing where it's like, I have gatecrashed what? Because, <laughs> you know, it's, it, that is nuts. The, the number of people who have written more than one target book and are still breathing is tiny. The number who've written more than two is really, really small. And the number who've written three or above, you go, what? <laughs> um, so yes, that, that, that's an incredible thing and uh, terribly exciting. And also the kind of thing that I would have to try and explain to my younger self and my younger self just would not get it or understand and would just be at the point of like, so Douglas Adams didn't do the target novel of City of Death? Oh. <laughs> and I'd be like, yep, yeah, but future self did and they'd be going yeah but Douglas Adams did oh <laughs> well I'm sure it's fine but oh <laughs> well there's, there's, there's you Rona Monroe Mark Platt Ian Briggs there's a few off the top of my head Eric Sayward 
So Eric can... Sayward, Nigel Robinson. Of course. Christopher H. Bidmead has done three. Yep. See, I've I've written more Target books than Stephen Gallagher. Yep. And Robert Holmes. Which obviously proves... Yep. Does that mean I'm... No. But still, <laughs> it's like, oh... I've also written more Target books than Gary Russell, which I'm sure means that every now and then at two o'clock in the morning, Gary Russell just wakes up, shakes a fist, and then goes back to sleep. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I can believe that, Gary. Most definitely. Lovely. So this one, of course, being something different because you actually got to novelize something. You got to see it and read the script before it had been on the telly, which, of course, makes it slightly different. And of course, you were the only one of the novelizers who got to see all three episodes. Yes, because you've you've probably heard other people's stories about about that, but I I remember that I went down to I went down to Cardiff in I'm going to say like early December 2022, and uh, that that was a thing because there was a train strike, and anybody else it would be completely obvious and straightforward they just go don't worry we're going to rearrange but this is doctor who so they do not rearrange you know it's it's especially because this was really really important so i caught a bus from london to cardiff so it was it was supposed to be a three-hour bus journey and it was seven hours there and six and a half hours back by bus and my main memory is the smell of the bus because there was a toilet on board the bus, but it stopped working very, very soon and the bus was really, really hot. So it smelled a very warm toilet for six and a half hours. And everyone just sat there going, no, no, I'm fine. I'm absolutely fine. And on the way down, I watched half of, uh, I started watching The Traitors, <laughs> the first season of The Traitors, because I just wanted to watch something that really wasn't, going to distract me from what was going to happen down in Cardiff. So I watched The Traitors on the way down and The Traitors on the way back. And I had to re-watch the episodes I'd watched on the way back because my head just wasn't in it. It's it's really very weird going and seeing something that's so secret that you are terrified that you will commit thought crime while watching it. And also, uh, I'm very lucky that I got to see all three episodes and... That was James Page, who's the brand manager, and Scott Hancock, the script editor. And and that that was a really strange experience because Gary Russell was there for the first episode and then it got to the end and just like on The Traitors, we murdered him. <laughs> Gary was banished from the castle. We actually got to watch him just walk through the car park and he looked back up at us and we waved at him and, and away went Gary. And then we sort of sat and we watched the second episode. And I found it a really weird experience because it was kind of like being made to watch three Paddington films back to back in that, you know, I, I cried white centrist dad tears solidly through the first episode. Then at the end of the first episode, I had to go and hide in the loo to cry more. Then just cried solidly through the second episode. And by the third episode, I was a bit sort of like, oh, I'm kind of done now. I I think I've got no more emotions. So actually watching the third episode was really weird because I was massively enjoying it, but also I was kind of like I couldn't spare the moisture. That was just I I was just kind of like oh, dry crying, which was kind of like that oh, it was a really weird experience and then we got because they'd said we're going to show you as much as we possibly can James and I was completely understanding because at that point I hadn't even had the full script so I had no idea what was going to happen you know my script stopped 
when the doctor turns to the toy maker and says, uh, let's do a deal. And that was the end of my script. I'm like, interesting. Well, I'm sure Doctor Who's going to die, and that's going to be quite sad, but there we go. And I had no idea what was going to happen. And we were watching the episode, and all of a sudden, David Tennant's face starts to glow, and I'm going, and then James Page goes, I'm terribly sorry, can we just pause it there? And I'm there going, okay, I've made my peace with myself. This is all that I, I have seen more than I deserve to see as a human being. This is fine. I don't get to see how Doctor Who dies. This is, this is, this is everything. And James Page is going, no, no, you don't understand. I have never needed to wee more in my life. I'm so sorry. I'll be back in a minute. I'm so sorry. And he left and I'm sat there going, oh. And Scott's looking at me and I'm like, and Scott's going, I'm not going to say anything. And so we are just sat there in silence going, how long can a man wee for? And I'm just sat there staring at David Tennant's burning face going, well, this is, I could do with some, what, what, what happens? And then James came in and he's like, I'm really, 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 really sorry. Does anybody want a cup of coffee or tea before we carry on? We're like, no, no. And then watched it. We watched the end, which was just mental really really mad because it wasn't what I was expecting and obviously having not cried through the whole thing all of a sudden by the time we got to that last scene there there was just this sort of like I was making this weird wailing noise James Page also hadn't seen it and was making a similar noise you know how when you, I mean, literally going back to the Paddington thing, you know how at the end of Paddington, when the credits roll, all you can hear is the sound of grown men sniffing? Yes. It was that. So. And Scott's, Scott's there with the lovely female video editor, and they're both like, we've seen this quite a lot, but you are you two okay? And we're like, oh, no. <laughs> so yeah, that, that, was, that was my experience of, of watching it, and then having to go and sit on a bus on the way home, just going, Claudia, get me through this. And she did. Yeah, yeah. I'm glad you made it through it, and uh, I can feel your. Yeah, but I, I then, can feel your trauma. But I then obviously had the thing of not telling anyone that I'd seen it, not being able to tell anyone that I'd seen it until the book was announced, and that was difficult, especially because you you know what London gay Doctor Who fans are like. They all sort of get together and they're in rooms, go, "What do you know? What do you know? What do you know?" And I'm there going. I'm not joining in with this. I can't join in with this. I'm terrified. You know, I, I have to have special logins on my laptop. I have no existing copy of the script in any physical... You know, it's just completely... I can't say a thing. And somebody actually turned to me at one of these get-togethers and went, Oh, you must feel so bad about being left out. Oh. <laughs> oh. And I'm like, yes, I am so sad. So yeah, you know, I got to sit on the most glorious secret for like, what was it, like nine months before the books were announced? It was a July, yeah, so yeah, seven months, seven months. It was a, and the books were announced. Not nobody sort of properly warned me the books were announced. It's just one of those Doctor Who things where it's like, ta-da, book, and you go, oh no, offline. <laughs> Uh, you know, they really should give you like a four-day warning to just see. You know, you know, like they tell people you need some time to make your peace with God. You need some time to turn Twitter off before everyone gets to you. Because you want to be like, no, I 
I've done a nice thing. And a lot of people are like, you have done a nice thing. This is exciting. But some people are like, no, you haven't. No, you really haven't. And you go, oh, no, I will. I will go and look at pictures of cats elsewhere for a few days. Bye bye. Yeah, that's it. Absolutely. Good cats are always always a good therapy. Yes. So I suppose that um, this must have been quite an interesting challenge then, given that you didn't have a readily accessible copy of the script. And obviously you'd have memories of what you'd seen for descriptions of costumes and things like that. But And, and then, of course, that's before the, you even get your co-writer. Yes, uh, the the uh, I'm sure that Mark and Gary have spoken about the interestingly secure script, have they? Yeah, so uh, you don't need me to go over that again, but that was... Uh, I do remember saying to Scott, but it's really useful because I think, you know, I, I, I will be able to just work on it on the train up, up to Scotland and, and Scott went on the train where people can see you on the train. And I went, well, I'll be sat in a really... And he's like, no, no, you won't. And you're just like, you're just aware that you have to be, you think you're being careful and then you realize you're not being careful enough. So, yes, I did. I did actually explain because I, I live in a village in Turkey and one of my friends, you know, knows spies. And I was explaining to her the process of novelizing this. And she she was just looking at me and going, mate, it's television. I know people who kill people. <laughs> what? And I'm like, no, no, you don't understand. This is more important than that. And she just looks at me and goes, ah, okay fine um but yeah so the actual process of novelizing was i i sort of thought that i wanted to do something a bit in honor of the way that the story tells itself so i thought that we could have some games and some fun with it but i never actually thought that people would let me get away with it but i sort of sent it through to the bbc and then i got a message from scott going no no all this is staying and steve cole just sent me a message going Ugh. Because it turns out that because of the secrecy, I'm sure Steve will have told you this, but he had to teach himself, no, they couldn't send it to an external design agency, so he had to lay it up in InDesign himself and learn how to do things that were really nuts. And I was like, well, surely you just... And he's like, no, it's really complicated. And I'm like, well, for the ebook, can we? And he's going, no, this is really difficult. So Steve put in so much unpaid emotional labor on trying to make the book look good and do all the crazy things that the book is doing. Because I, I was there going, well, I've managed to do it in Microsoft Word. Surely it's really easy in InDesign. And Steve's going, no, no, this is this is very hard. And I'm there going, oh, but he's he's done things. So there are even pages where the text just swirls madly. He's done so many fun, creative, sweet, cute things that have, have made the book falling apart. Because as, as people read the book, they'll realize the book starts to fall apart and becomes less and less coherent. And that is, you know, it is technically still a novelization, but it gets distracted and it goes off uh, on meandering uh, sidesteps and there's fun, there's games, and uh, that bit's nice. And, and the whole book is built around a big surprise which you know i was i was really really pleased about the big surprise that i was allowed to do the big surprise and that was fine yeah i particularly enjoyed it just sort of the books just that followed up and it's when they're playing the game with catch 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 going all over the page and then scrabbling as you can see there dropping down and yeah just brilliant brilliant well done yeah, Steve. you know that was 
that was really fun because there was a thing where, where when I got the job, Scott said, oh, there's a couple of things that you will find really difficult. Good luck. And one of them was a game of catch. And I'm like, you can't write a game of catch in a novel. You just can't. And the other was the musical number. And I handed it in and went, but of course, they'll have, they will have cleared the lyrics for the musical number. They, they'll have cleared the lyrics as part of the worldwide Super Disney, Doctor Who, BBC, everything deal. And it came back and they went, oh, do you know what we forgot? What the what? No. And, and, and I went, oh, well, that's fine. And then there was some pushback and somebody very, very clever, much cleverer than me said, why isn't the toy maker singing every song so we can have lines from every single lyric of every song? That'll be brilliant. And I stayed up very late one night and pulled together lyrics from, you know, one line from every single song, sent that in. And Steve Cole went, actually, that's worse. That's even worse. That's even more expensive than the situation we're in. So we, we had to novelize, we had to find a way of novelizing the musical number without the lyrics from the musical number but in a way that it's still funny and well, still makes sense. Yeah. Uh, and it is it is the only book I've ever written that's had to go to a lawyer. There, there literally was a real version of Miss Pockleton involved who had to lawyer the bits about a musical lawyer. Yeah, so some of Steve Cole's correspondence ended up in the book as being written by a musical lawyer who turns up and tells the celestial toy maker what can and cannot be sung, which I was, I was pleased with. And the, uh, the fact that the phrase "la la 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 la" is not copyrighted as well is useful. Yes, well, no, that that there really was a long legal discussion about how copyrighted are laws, and it turns out that there's several different "la la la la"s in the Spice Girls song. So there's that. That's amazing. We we were allowed at the screening. I said it would be very important for author reasons to watch the musical sequence again. And they grudgingly said yes. And then I said, can I watch it one more time? And they said, ah, no. Because <laughs> I, I, I honestly, when I, when I first saw it, I was like, I can't believe this. Uh, and had to watch it again. And I still think that the thunk of Kate Lethbridge-Stewart's head is the funniest thing and uh, you know it's there are other things but obviously Kate Lethbridge-Stewart hitting a wall so for some reason it's hilarious and I can't explain why <laughs> I completely get that and then of course the talking book Dan Starkey doing an incredible job on it but before we started you mentioned there are differences between the print and the audio so we should buy both Yes, because uh, I sat there for a while because uh, I messaged Steve Cole at some point and went they they is there going to be an audiobook? And Steve was like, oh, probably, I don't know. And I'm like, there might be trouble ahead. And obviously, this being the way of things, didn't hear anything until getting an email from Michael Stevens going, so we're going to be in studio in a week, and I've read the book, and it's a good book. It's a very good book. You should be very... Help me! Because obviously the book does some formatting things. And so, you know, there's there's things like there's a word search in the book. And Michael was like, well, we can't really do a word search in a book. But also because the book has very carefully numbered chapters, we can't leave chapters out. And I said, oh, 
oh ca- can't you and he went no because uh, there's there's a thing is it whisper sync or something there's there's some kind of thing where basically if you do that audible goes really weird so we couldn't just leave chapters out uh and so i just wrote like replacement chapters so there's whole new chunks of stuff that fill in things and there's some text that's reordered because there's a whole chunk of the book that's in the wrong order so i reordered it because initially i said well we'll just leave those 10 chapters out and michael was like no no can't do that audible will break so there's there's new text and reordered text and stuff so hopefully it all makes sense but also um there was a lot of conversation and in the end it turned out Dan Stark was right and I was wrong because uh, Michael was going, we're just off into the recording and Dan thinks it should be la 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 and I went, oh, I think it's la 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 la, you know, like as from the Spice Girls song and we had a lot of back and forth and eventually poor old Dan had to record all the la's twice and eventually I got to see the episode again shortly before transmission and sent Michael Stevens a voice note going, I've got it wrong, here are the Lars. And Michael Stevens, I forgot to give him any context, so he just got a voice note of somebody who doesn't normally send him messages, just going, <laughs> la 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 la. And he was like, who is this? Why is this? What? And I'm like, oh god, Michael, sorry. So, because I didn't want to say too much, because, you know, I didn't want to in violate my NDA so it all didn't quite make any sense but we got there in the end and I think I'm really looking forward to seeing it I feel really sorry for Dan because both Dan and Michael basically worked on it without seeing the episode so they're in this very strange situation where they got to do you know it's kind of like us seeing the five doctors in big Sainsbury's before it was on TV where they were like well I guess this is what's on TV so it's sort of ruined for them, which is very sad, actually, considering they're lovely people. But there we go. Yeah, yeah. I think it's a great novelization, James. I think you've done a brilliant piece of work on it. It's just unput downable because I found I was reading it at like half two in the morning so I could finish it all in one go. So thank you very oh. much for bringing such joy. But one final question for you. There's still quite a lot of unnovelized new series stories out there. If you could pick another one to do, which one would you go for? Oh, that's easy. For very personal reasons, it would be Stolen Earth and Journey's End. Oh, interesting, because Gary's tried to nab that one as well. Yeah, I mean, that that was... I was was terribly, terribly, terribly ill when those episodes went out. Like, in hospital, probably going to die. And so it was just that thing of uh, literally Doctor Who kept me going because it was like the end of the Stolen Earth when David Tennant gets exterminated. I'm like, well, I can't die now. Bugger. You know, this this is why cliffhangers, you know, cliffhangers are supposed to be deadly danger. But that cliffhanger, I'm not saying it saved my life, but it was a definite kind of like, well, I better keep going for one more bloody week at least. Because the first week I was in hospital was Turn Left, which was the most disappointing episode. The first time I watched it, Turn Left was terribly disappointing because I was there going, this could be the last episode of Doctor Who I ever see. And you're there going, it's a Doctor Light episode. I'm going to die watching a Doctor Light episode. This is very disappointing. So, yeah, I'm the only person who didn't enjoy Turn Left on first transmission, which is the most fanish 
entitled awfulness imaginable. But there you go. So yes, Stolen Earth and Journey's End are very important to me. Yep, I think the fact that you nearly died, you trumped Gary on that one. So yeah, you win. Sorry, Gary, you need to find another one. <laughs> yep, there you go. I've answered your question. Fantastic. James, that's been brilliant. Thank you so much. No, thank you. As James just mentioned, Dan Starkey had his work cut out on reading the talking book version. So let's hear from the actor now. I'm Dan Starkey, and I'm the reader of the audiobook of The Giggle by James Goss, from a script by Russell D. Davis. <laughs> that sounds like such an introduction to an audiobook, but slightly sped up to finish. Chapter it. one. <laughs> yes, yeah. I suppose that this must have been. From a fan point of view, a treat and a massive spoiler at exactly the same time. It was, of course, because it came through, oh gosh, it must have been about a month before the actual serial was broadcast on TV. So um, I had I knew nothing about it, of course, because obviously I try to watch things completely fresh. Even the articles in Doctor Who magazine, I don't read because I, I like to, you know, I like to be surprised by things. But um, but this one, okay, <laughs> it's it, it's nice it's nice being part of being 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 part of uh, that sort of thing. But yeah, it, it, was, it was tempered by that slight sort of disappointment that I won't be able to watch it fresh. But um, it was very interesting because um, it's almost like when they first started releasing um, lots of VHS videos when I was a kid. Uh, of stories that I hadn't seen originally. Um, I remember with a couple of them reading the Target novel, rereading the Target novel before I got, because I knew I was going to get something like Terror of the Zygons or something, and then sort of having that anticipation. So it's almost like that again, but it's, um, yeah, just, just to see how, yeah, how, the, how the visual image was different from the, uh, from the written word. But um, obviously this one, it's, yeah, it's just, I, I, was, I was sort of flying blind with, um, with what to do, in terms of in terms of everything, because there really weren't any pointers given beyond so like the usual sort of breakdown that you get with an audiobook. But to be honest, even with you know, I've, I've done a couple of the target, re read a couple of the target novelizations like um, Nightmare of Eden, which was weirdly one of my favourite ones when I was a kid anyway, and I I was you know, I hadn't seen the original TV version of that. So um, when I'm doing those, the point is not to completely emulate. The televised version, because I think that's a little point. It's, it's an audiobook, and it's got to sort of like live on its own merits. So, um, so yeah. So what you hear in the audiobook is my interpretation <laughs> of James's words, uh, which is an interpretation of Russell's script. So it's um, yeah, it's an interesting. Yeah, I hope I hope people enjoy it. <laughs> I would dread to think what you had to gazing when you read that opening chapter in, uh, and to think, oh my goodness, gazing and everything else that goes with it. Yeah, oh, uh, everything was, um, it was mainly the stuff about, because um, obviously the, the, there's a musical cue, you know, the, uh, the, 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 the toy maker has that sort of wonderful sort of dance routine where he destroys unit soldiers in the, in the base and uh, emulating a song by the Spice Girls. And of course, there's very specific, <laughs> uh, when James makes a bit of a game of this in the, in the script, you, you, can't, you, you can't quote the lyrics or you can't quote the tune either. So it's kind of it's emulating the rhythm of that in the uh, in the dialogue and sort of like at the same time it's yeah it was it, it was quite a tricky one to to, to to kind of do in isolation and also just the whole thing of the uh, of, of how the laughs came out <laughs> um, you know because it's meant to be an arpeggio in other bit and so going how the hell do I you, you read the description you think this could yeah it's it's open to interpretation when you when you look at it but hopefully what I did wasn't too different and didn't do injury to what the script intended in the televised version because obviously Bonnie Langford is a bit of a better singer than I am <laughs> <laughs> well, I was enjoying it I'm sampling that we're going to make a dance record out of that Dan. 
Yes. Yeah, oh, you sound, like, sound like Woody Woodpecker after a while, you know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, superb. No, I think, uh, I mean, I'd imagine when you're doing the la, 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 and to not yeah. actually sing it must have been really difficult as well. Yeah, and it's also, because in the thing is with an audiobook as well, that you really can't change the words. They, the words are sort of a, you've got to say them as they're printed. And sometimes if it's an obvious typo, you have a bit of leeway to go, I think it should be that. But yeah, all the way through James' script, I was counting the number of la 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 la, you know, and sometimes it was six, sometimes it was seven, going, right, which rhythm is that? <laughs> and then listening to the uh, the Spice Girls track over and over again, which 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 bit of the uh, chorus is that? So it was uh, it was quite a yeah quite 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 a lot to think about when uh, when reading, when reading reading is a uh, reading from cold. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a uh, it's a wonderful reading, you know, from the bits that I've heard, and I think that. There's so, there's so many challenges for you in there, particularly when we get to the the by generation as well, and sort of like yes. finding the new Doctor's voice with Jago, David Tennant, and then Jago is that a bit Scottish for shooty? It must have been a real challenge. Well, that was the thing also because obviously there was when when I was doing it, the only bit of shooty routine was that very small clip. You know what the hell is going on here? And that was the only thing that that, that there was it. So I, I I actually texted Scott Hancock. It's like going, does Shooty sound more Scottish than he does in Sex Education? Because he doesn't sound, you know, he, he uses a, he uses different voices and different things he's, he's doing. And obviously I'm not doing an impression, but I need to do something which tells the story better. And also to differentiate him from, from, from the other Doctor. You, you want to give a suggestion of the uh, of the actor's actual voice. So I hope I did that. But um, but we shall see. But it's interesting, you know, certain things like the, um, the very last scene where they're all sitting around in the garden and it's all terribly nice and... Uh, it's interesting. That's such a sort of like a, a such a nice light scene with lots of throwaway dialogue on the cast, clearly so like enjoying each other's company and so I just just acting off each other. It's quite sparky. And then James has got to turn that into you know a chapter of prose, and so that changes the nature of how you deliver those lines. It's just it's just got a bit more body to it. So yeah, it's interesting interesting getting the getting the tone of something like that because. Yeah, you've, you've got all the actors who very much embody their parts and start sparking off each other. And then if you're doing that by yourself, it's a lot to think of. So, uh, but yeah, I hope, I hope it came across okay. And of course, there's the revelation as we go from prose to in the first person as well, as we find out who the mysterious narrator is. Yes. Yes, and again, that was the thing of, right, how much do I see this at the start? Because it's, it's more or less my normal narrator's voice when I'm doing an audiobook, which then sort of changes. But then I get more theatrical and I have more fun with the with the prose and stuff. But it's great. So it becomes almost more like an acting, you know, like like a, like a dramatic monologue than it does a sort of straight sort of like a prose read, which is fine, you know, because it's, it's it's all it's all on the spectrum of audio audio performing, you know, whether it's sort of a, an audio book or an audio drama or something. But it's um yeah, it was it was very enjoyable and certainly just being in the booth, those chapters when it's directly revealed that this is who is talking to you they just sped past because all of a sudden i'm in character and it's yeah the toy maker is enjoying sort of um taking the reader on this journey yeah it's it's it, 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 just just because it, it, it's quite an intense i think i did it in about a day and a half and as you can imagine it's saturation you know you sort of like do and it was like I was doing it sort of like in studio with Neil Gardner so producing who was great just having another brain and another set of ears because inevitably you know you can be on it as much as you uh, as much as you as much as you can be but sort of like there will be bits where you go slightly word blind or you just say something that isn't quite is what written there because you know you get you get sort of caught up in it so just having another pair of uh, another pair of ears is is, is extremely useful and uh, and Neil's very good at that job 
Yeah, he's very, very good. He knows what he's doing old Doctor audiobooks himself. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Yeah. So I'd imagine then that when it came to actually watching it, did it live up to your expectations and was, was it different from what you expected? It's more, it's, I mean, obviously there were some, some of the images and so like all the all the teaser trailers and that sort of thing, but so like seeing it all together, going, ah, okay, yes, I think, yeah, it, it's interesting because in prose, especially things like the, the Stooky Babbies and uh, Stooky Sue, that could be even more gothic, I think, sort of like uh, in my head, it could have been even darker. But it's simply, you know, it's it's the nature of prose that you sort of like you supply your own pictures and sort of that. But I think it was beautifully realised on screen and sort of seeing all the puppets move was was delightful. But I think also because you've got in the prose, because you can flesh things out as well. If they're not actually some deleted lines, sort of like from the script, which I think in one or two places there are little grace notes that perhaps didn't make it into the final edit, which are clearly still there in the prose. There are bits of backstory that you fill out. So you know the first bit where. Um, John Logie Baird's assistant goes to the toy shop. Use of, you know, there, there, there's more of his internal monologue about his child and that sort of thing going there, and it, 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 it colours it a lot more. So you, you've got that kind of investment. But it, it, it's how prose works as opposed to TV works. So, uh, but no, I, th- I thought it was beautifully, beautifully shot and beautifully realised. And it's uh, yeah, I mean, all, all the specials have been just yeah. You can see it's upped. Even you know, the last sort of couple of Jodie Whittaker seasons look, look fantastic visually, but sort of like now it's just it's it's quite a it's quite another level as well. What a, what what like what they can achieve. So it's a, yeah, it's great. Yeah, I was pleased that the Lacerta line made it into the novelisation, even if Russell did cut it for TV. <laughs> yes, yes, just just there, just to make sure we're all part of the same. It's all part of the same story. <laughs> <laughs> I yeah. loved it, and yeah, it was. Do you know there was something that the special was missed though, Dan. Hmm. Sontarans. Oh yeah, well you know, everything's better with a Sontaran in it. Yeah, absolutely agreed. <laughs> At Dan, some point, I'm sure. Yes, I, I hope so. I hope so. Yeah. I'm trying to get work for you here, mate. Yes. Oh, go there. Oh. Keep on. I'll, keep I'll on text Russell letters. later. <laughs> yeah. But no, Dan. Thank you so much for sharing your experiences of the giggle. Absolute pleasure. We've talked print editions. We've talked audiobook editions. But let's go back to something that unifies them both, because both versions have the same cover, which is that fantastic artwork from Anthony Dry. And sadly, it's also his final piece of Doctor Who art for now. And he's going to tell us about the process involved in creating this, and also why he's saying a fond farewell to the range. I'm Anthony Dry, and I, I was the illustrator for the latest Target Doctor Who books. Final book you got to do there, the giggle, and just so much fun in there, and there's so much. I mean, I'd, I hadn't even noticed until sort of I got the physical book that Stooky Bill is on the ace, and just oh, there's so much detail. And again, what was your initial thinking, and did you stick close to it with the finished version? So the, the giggle one was was strange because um, that was the second one I did, the second book cover. Obviously, he'd been announced. I don't think they'd named him as the toy maker, but I think everyone kind of knew that 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 was going to be his role. And that was like earlier in the year. So they gave me a few images, and they gave me an image of him doing that with his hands, you know, pushing out with his hands. And then they gave me a few other images that had like playing card symbols on, but there was no playing cards. And I thought, well, why don't I just do it? I was thinking about the Joker for some reason, because he looks manic. Uh, you know, the Joker out of Batman. And so I thought, I'll just have him with his hands outstretched and then I'll, I'll put all these cards 
flying out of his hands with the petals. But I had no idea there was any cards, playing cards in it, but there was playing cards in the in the actual episode as well, which is a bit strange. But they were happy with that, and then I thought, I'll put Stucky Bill on the ace, because obviously he's, he's the little puppet character. And then it just started to fall. It just really started to fall. It was a great image that they gave me of him to, to work from, because it's quite dynamic. And then I thought, you know, I'll, put, I'll flank him with the Doctor and Donna left and right, with David Tennant looking, looking shocked. And then, strangely enough, I think they released a publicity image which was kind of similar to that near the, the time of the episode, but it came after the book had long since been finished. So I don't know whether they'd seen it or used some of it or, or whether they'd just had an idea and no one had even looked at the book cover that I did, but there were similar images to that as well that they used in the photography and the um, promo images. But that was, a, that was a good book to do and it was nice to do Neil Patrick Harris on the cover. He's quite, got quite a nice face to illustrate. He's got like a lot of character in it. And I always like doing David Tennant's face. He's very, very nice to illustrate David Tennant. Yeah. He always looks good. Well, that was, he always looks good. So yeah, that's how that one came across. But I had a lot more, more room with that one. It gave me a lot more image, imagery to work with that one. Now, something that I noticed at the end of the book, in the Star Beast, you've got a wee farewell. So, is this it? Your last one? It is, yes. I mean, the, um, so, it was quite, obviously, it was quite a stressful year last year, and it was doing these covers, and, and you know, I was looking after my father, who's not very well, and I was kind of weighing it up, and I was thinking, you know, I'm finding it harder to fit, fit these into my schedule, especially with everything that's going on. And they asked whether I'd be up for doing the new series, The Church on Ruby Road. And I said, I'll, I'll have a think about it. I said, I need to just go away and have a good think about everything before I commit. Because I said, I don't want to commit to something and then I can't deliver it. And then you'd be struggling to get it. Because I think that one's getting released this end of this, is it the end of this month? I think that's yeah, Very, very soon. Yep. Yeah, very very quick turnover. And so I went away and I just waded up and I thought, you know, my time's quite stretched. I've got to, you know, my dad's care is going to continue. And then, you know, I, I also looked at, you know, you do look at online comments and stuff and there's a lot of people who like a lot of a lot of what you do and then there's some people who are like, oh, the faux Achilles covers are getting a bit, you know, I want them to, I'd like to see it changed up and all that and I was thinking well maybe maybe it's a good 24 is a really good run and maybe with with it being a new doctor and a new era this is the chance for them to kind of change the direction because target novels always had different they went through different phases didn't they of like obviously they started with the, the Achilles stuff and then it went to more painted stuff with Cummins and Kite and, and Skeletor and then he went for photographic for a while, and then he went all like quite graphic, graphic and realistic painting with Pearson. So they went through different phases, and they had they had different looks and different feels to them. And I thought maybe this is a good chance for them. And I've since seen the the new novel, and I, I, although they've gone like digital kind of photography, it's obviously designed digital photography. It's a nice like setup. Uh, it might be Lee Binding that's done it. So. It looks quite nice, so it's 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 a departure from the nostalgic style. So yeah, I think I think twenty four was enough enough for me. I I was also aware that they wanted the the cover ASAP as well, 
which would have meant I'd have to keep continuing to work on the covers rather than having it. And I needed I needed a break from it really as well. I think if I think I may have done one more batch if it was going to be a mixture of old series stuff because the new series stuff, my experience doing the anniversary specials, it was quite hard to get assets and imagery. And when it's any when it's any of the other doctors or the previous doctors, I've got plenty of imagery that I can rely on. My own stuff, I've got discs and discs of the stuff, and so I don't need to bother anyone. I can just go away and I can start sketching things up and, and all that. So I thought, well, you know, if it's the new series, maybe they'll be quite secretive over that as well. So yeah, that kind of it was it was multifactored really, but the main factor was was my father really I need to be around for him and help him out and help me mum out. So. So yeah, that's well, that. These I think they were good to end on. To be honest, sixty well, You can't ask for a better finale than the sixtieth yeah, anniversary well, specials. You've gone out in the high with three absolutely brilliant covers, and I think the fact, the fact that Russell T's actually says it all. So thank you for all that you've done. It's been wonderful, and I've thoroughly enjoyed them all. No oh, thanks, thanks. I've I've really enjoyed working on them. It's it's nice to see them resurrected, and you know, me, me daughter started reading them now. So she started getting into Doctor Who over Christmas and she's been binge watching all the the new series. I don't know whether I'd get her onto the classic series. She's asked about the classic series, but it it might be a bit too slow for, for her at, the, at this moment in time <laughs> than the fast-paced ones. Yeah, my daughter watched The Ice Warriors with me when she was three days old and she fell asleep, so maybe not a good sign. <laughs> <laughs> And that's been brilliant. Thank you so much. Really appreciate you taking the time. No worries, mate. So there we go. Thank you, Ant, for all your fantastic covers over the past few years. Thoroughly loved them. And yeah, I could happily look at those for hours and have them as poster prints on my wall in my office. Oh, can't but dream. Don't forget, you can buy The Giggle in shops and online. It's a UK price of £9.99. It's $13.99 in the US, $19.99 in Canada, dollars of course, and you can find out more at www.penguin.co.uk or indeed you can find them on social media at Who BBC Books. That's Who BBC Books. And you can find out more about it. That's been a bit of a bumper episode today, chatting with Steve Cole. James Goss, Dan Starkey, and of course Anthony Dry. So yes, we've given you a fairly comprehensive look at this book, and indeed the other ones that have just been published, but what's that you say? Isn't there another new Target novelisation out there? Why yes indeed there is. There's the church on Ruby Road, and well, I think you lot know by now that I am a bit of a completist, and like everything to be done properly, so yes, we are going to be back tomorrow and we are going to be having a look at the writing of this novel. So, until then, I've been Kenny Smith. Thank you so much for listening. And, hang on a minute, you know that we like to play out a tune every day, so why don't we go with one that seems slightly appropriate? After all, if you've seen The Giggle or read the book, you know that it involves television. And, in my mind, there's always something better on TV than real life. In fact, you could almost say that the sun always shines on TV, so why don't we hand over to those boys from AHA and enjoy a little bit of Scandinavian pop. We'll be back tomorrow. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.